Don't judge a book by its cover. All that glitters is not gold. Looks can be deceiving. There's two sides to every story. Pithy catchphrases such as these are easy to remember, right? They're so easy to remember that we can easily tell those to one another, probably more than some Bible verses that we might try to memorize. Uh, They have nuggets of wisdom in them too. Elements of practical advice that we can apply to our lives when we're faced with various decisions we have to make. Wisdom to help guide us on whether or not we should purchase something or the type of friends we should keep or get rid of or the type of things that we should be angry about, maybe some form of rebellion that we've witnessed in our lives or on TV or possibly whether or not we should be angry and grieved about some form of injustice that we have perceived that has taken place. I think it's safe for the most part to say that these sayings contain within them pearls of wisdom that have been tested and tried over time. I'd imagine many of us have been given these words of advice even as young as children when we were growing up. When we're kids, our parents often tell us not to buy the first thing we see. When we grow up, and if we're looking for someone, that special someone to marry, we've been told it's what's on the inside that counts. In fact, the book of Proverbs ends with this timely counsel that a mother, a wise mother, would give her son. Proverbs 31, verse 30, charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. If charm can be deceitful, and beauty can be vain or temporary or fleeting, then being most concerned with what's on the inside should apply to all our relationships especially our closest relationships in the church. The Apostle Paul calls that being equally yoked. It's being like-minded in heart and goal. And it's something that not only married couples should desire, but it's also something that pastors and church members should desire too. A like-mindedness about the preeminence and preaching of the gospel a like-mindedness on the importance of discipleship, missions, and church membership, and a like-mindedness over the mutual concern for genuine conversion in the life of sinners. All of these things should be important to all of us who identify as followers of Jesus Christ. Because when you put all these things together, they really serve as an unbreakable chain. All these elements are important to God, and therefore they should be important to us. They affect the life, the unity, and the witness of a local church. Well, brothers and sisters, when there is a deep and robust like-mindedness on God's glory, shining through 
and in the life of his church, we will be inevitably concerned about the conditions, not of the chairs, not of the music, not of the size of the building, not how flashy the website is, but we will be most concerned about the conditions of people's hearts, including our own heart. A genuine and growing concern to see people transformed from the inside by the power of the Holy Spirit as God humbles us. He brings us to the end of ourselves so that we might rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In other words, when all these concerns become a like-minded concern in the life of a church, you will see a church full of people not content to simply play church and pretend to follow Jesus. Friends, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but pretenders aren't found just in movies or magic shows. They're also found lurking around in the local church. In fact, the Apostle Paul warned his young protege, Timothy, in ministry about the deceptive nature of people who appeared godly in the church of Ephesus, but who were devoid of the Spirit of God. We read in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Now, to be honest, commands like these can be pretty hard to obey sometimes because looks or appearances, especially even in the church, can be very deceiving. That means our own perception of the facts before us might be off. That's why we need hearts full of wisdom and hearts full of love. Jonathan Edwards once said, There are always two sides to every story, and it is generally wise and safe and charitable to take the best. And yet, there is probably no one way in which persons are so liable to be wrong as in presuming the worst is true and informing and expressing their judgment of others and of their actions without waiting until all the truth is known. That's why we need God's heavenly wisdom that we can obtain through prayer, through Bible study, uh, through seeking the counsel of mature men and women who have walked 
with God. You see, God's wisdom is the ability to apply God's truth in God's world in a way that pleases God. Uh, That means that God's wisdom, therefore, is what enables us to make right judgments on what we see and what we hear. God's wisdom enables us to make right judgments on what we see and what we hear. So if these familiar sayings are true, don't judge a book by its cover. All that glitters is not gold. Looks can be deceiving. There's two sides to every story. If those common idioms and phrases, words of advice are true, then we really do need God's help, don't we? We need God's help to see reality as he sees reality. That's why when Jesus was being wrongly accused in John chapter 7, Jesus reminded the Jews in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. I would encourage you to read John chapter 7 sometime to get the fuller context, and you'll see the weight of what Jesus is trying to convey there. But in short, here's the Cliff Notes version. This is really just Jesus' way of telling us, get all your facts in line before you render a final assessment on someone's character and someone's actions. You see, how we make careful evaluations of what we see and hear, those are called appearances, right, is a timeless principle for all of God's people to uphold. Uh, Whether it's solving a dispute in your marriage or with a neighbor or with a fellow church member, or you are apprehensive or maybe angry at the appearance of evil, we should consider the truthfulness of Proverbs 18, verse 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Therefore, being patient and prudent rather than presumptuous and proud is the heart posture that we should all desire in our life. That means we shouldn't be characterized as people who believe the first thing that we hear and render a final verdict on the first thing we see. You know, unlike our social media, frantic, crazed world, of all people, God's people, we don't want to draw hasty conclusions before we have thoroughly examined the facts. Indeed, under the Mosaic Law and the teachings of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, they all echo the same teachings about how we deal with charges and accusations. Both the Old and New Testament alike echo the same principle. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Friends, life experience has taught each one of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, that things 
aren't always what they initially appear to be. First impressions should not be our final conclusions about someone. Every charge and every accusation must be carefully examined in light of the facts, in light of who God is, and in light of what God reveals. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, if you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 489. Mark chapter 2. This morning, we turn to the next scene in Jesus' ministry, where he meets the next two encounters with the religious authorities of his day. Like we've seen so far in Mark's gospel, these authorities oppose Jesus. They begin to accuse Jesus. And what we'll read today is that they now even want to destroy Jesus. One example of how Jesus would kind of ruffle the feathers of the religious authorities is simply by how Jesus revealed himself. He's healed a paralytic man, and he forgave that paralytic man of his sins. We've also seen Jesus teach and proclaim the word of God unashamedly, courageously to the masses who wanted to hear the words of life. And last week, we even studied how Jesus surprisingly reveals himself as the friend of notorious sinners and the faithful bridegroom who has come for an unlikely and undesirable bride. You know, one example of how Jesus loved the unlovable was his initiative to pursue Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, remember? He added Matthew to the small team that he was building to be his future apostles. Uh, Of course, the Pharisees, who thought they knew better, uh, realized that Jesus was not the best uh, CEO of a company. Didn't exactly pick the best friends and the best kind of foundation for his ministry with. A bunch of ragged-tagged teenage fishermen and a tax collector. They began to look down on the disciples. They began to look down on Jesus. But once again, Jesus does these things to reveal something about himself. To unveil something that surprised the self-righteous in his day of the primary purpose for why Jesus came to this earth and ultimately why he taught what he did, healed people when he did, and befriended and loved who he did. Look with me in Mark 2, verses 16 and 17. If you weren't here last week, you can check it out on the podcast. Let's be reminded of what type of people did Jesus come To rescue. Mark 2, verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, this morning, we're going to look at two 
separate scenes, two separate events that took place in Jesus' ministry, but they both occurred on one very hallowed day on the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest? And ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, my outline comes in the form of a false accusation made by the Pharisees that is then brought to the light with two truth claims counterexamined by Jesus. So what is the false accusation made by the Pharisees? The accusation is this. Jesus and his disciples are breaking the Sabbath regulations. Look now at Mark 2, verses 23 and 24 again. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, I am totally aware that some of you might not be all that familiar with the Bible. You may have never even heard of anything like a Sabbath. And so let me kind of educate you and bring us all up to speed. What exactly the Sabbath day was? Well, the Sabbath day was a special day in the day of a Jewish person in the nation of Israel. It was a seventh day within a seven-day calendar week where they ceased from their ordinary labors of work from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. Orthodox Jews still do this today. 
The purposes of this day were multifaceted. Fundamentally, the day was used as a time to remember God's goodness to them as creator and provider. It was also today to be physically refreshed. You know, if you've ever wondered, does God approve of vacation and time off? Listen, if you read the Old Testament, there are feast days, there's whole weeks, there's even years that God had put into the DNA of Israel to take a break, to chill out, to be refreshed, both themselves, their servants, their animals, after a long week of work. And it was a day also that served as a covenantal sign, as they were a chosen people set apart for God. And literally, they set apart one day in a seven-day calendar week to show off this special relationship with God as God's covenant people. The Sabbath day was formally baked into the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. It's the fourth commandment that God gave Moses to deliver to the people of Israel. Those of us who are familiar with the Ten Commandments, or maybe you kids, I've heard on Wednesday night through the New City Catechism, you've been memorizing and studying and reciting the Ten Commandments. You may already know what the fourth commandment is. Maybe you can quiz your mom or dad or grandma and grandpa to see if they remember it after the sermon. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, tells us what the fourth commandment was. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now the Sabbath would eventually have an expanded purpose too, as it was also an instruction to the nation of Israel, the second generation of the Israelites, as they would be reminded of their exodus out of Egypt as they entered into the promised land. That means that not only was God's rest from his seven-day week on creation to be remembered, but it was also to be a day where they are reminded of the great salvation, the great deliverance that they had witnessed and heard of God doing for his people out of Israel, you, you can, or out of Egypt. You can see that more on Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 15. Because the Sabbath day was a special day uh, where certain parameters were given on ceasing from someone's ordinary work, uh, there were consequences, serious consequences, if someone disobeyed the Sabbath day commandment. And so we can rightly understand the gravity of this command, this was an offense much greater than a local owner of a Chick-fil-A opening up their store on a Sunday. Now, some of us wish they would, but as serious as that might be to those in Atlanta who oversee Chick-fil-A, the gravity of this offense was far greater than a fine on a local business. If someone intentionally disregarded the Sabbath day observance by working, specifically like plowing and harvesting, trading and selling, it was judged as a capital offense. In other words, it simply wouldn't just be a a ticket or a fine or some type of 
uh, issue from the court in the mail. It would actually mean the death penalty for those who transgressed this command. Listen to Exodus 35, verses 1 to 2. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Now, there's many other passages we could go to, but we don't have time for that. But as you hear these commands, as you hear these consequences, it should highlight the gravity of what's going on in the Gospel of Mark. If honoring the Sabbath was a person's act of worship, as they reoriented their hearts towards God as the center and focal point of their life, then abandoning the Sabbath would be to turn one's back on the God of the covenant. The severity then of breaking this commandment was something that those in the covenant community of Israel would remind each other of then. Those who fear God would teach their children and teach their friends. This is not some small thing in God's eyes. This was the non-negotiable day of the week. This was the red letter day of the week where other competing interests had to take a back seat to their priority list. But over time, there were Jews, particularly after the Babylonian captivity into Jesus' day, called the Pharisees. And they would add to God's revelation their own man-made traditions regarding the Sabbath day. Specifically in how people were to properly observe it according to their own personal standards, well beyond the interpretation and application of Scripture. Examples of some of these added rules that they put in their back pocket were things like tediously measuring certain distances as too far to travel from your home on the Sabbath day. Historical accounts indicate that their rules have become so scrupulous that work to be forbidden would include things like tying or loosing knots, sewing more than one stitch, or writing more than one letter. So by the time the Pharisees are following Jesus' every move, they're like wolves scoping out their prey. They're wanting to sniff out not really from God's word, but from their own rule book, whether or not his disciples were breaking the Sabbath. Now, the question to ask is this. Is their assessment in charge against the disciples of Jesus valid? Would Gunnar DeLay at work be able to strike the gravel and say, guilty as charged? Is Jesus somehow promoting some form of Sabbath day rebellion parade by supporting their grain work or the appearance thereof on the Sabbath. Well, notice Jesus' response to their accusation, starting in verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read 
what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, in order to counter these accusations, Jesus answers their charge with two truth claims. Let's look at that first truth claim. Truth claim number one, Jesus appeals to the authority of Scripture. He rightly applies the Word of God to support their actions. Interestingly, Jesus appeals to a passage of Scripture that these Pharisees were probably not even anticipating. Have you ever been in one of those kind of discussions with someone and you know you're going to like finish their sentence? You know what they're going to say and you've got your comeback and then all of a sudden they come out with something you didn't see coming? Kind of like a trick play? Well, here Jesus quotes a scripture passage that I don't think the Pharisees had on the front of their mind. You know, Jesus could have alluded to passages like Exodus 20, Exodus 34, Exodus 35, plenty of places to talk about the Sabbath, but Jesus instead wisely and carefully draws their attention back to a passage about David in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 21 is about David and his men who were fleeing from an angry and jealous King Saul. And then they would approach the tabernacle, the, the place of worship, that movable tent the place where sacrifices and offerings would be offered to God by the Israelites. Now, amidst David's and his men's long journey, kind of like a long summer road trip with your family, they they got a little hungry. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? When are we going to stop and get something to eat? Well, David and his men became naturally hungry. They were tired. They were running. And the only bread on hand in 1 Samuel 21 that Jesus alludes to that David and his men could eat would have been the bread of the presence. This was the holy bread, the special bread, the consecrated bread, those 12 loaves that were reserved on the Sabbath day only for the priest on duty. You can read more about that in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 to 9. And Jesus says it was in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, Abiathar was actually related to the priest that met David on this journey, uh, which was the priest Ahimelech. And in this instance, Jesus is demonstrating that when Ahimelech graciously gave David and his men this consecrated, this special loaves of bread, a higher principle was being upheld on the Sabbath day because they were hungry. And there was no other bread available. A higher priority was kept on this very sacred day. What is that priority? What is the higher principle that David was exemplifying, that now Jesus is exemplifying? What's love? Specifically, love 
that demonstrated itself by meeting someone's urgent human need over keeping rigid religious rules. In this case, it was was food. What Jesus is doing by leaning on 1 Samuel 21 as his support, he's not getting in a theological debate with them. He's not trying to outdo them with showing who knows their Old Testament necessarily better. Jesus actually has a plan behind the plan. Jesus quotes a passage they didn't think about to do something to get to their hearts. What Jesus was exposing that day was the hidden legalism of these Pharisees' hearts. You see, the Pharisees, which would be the dictionary definition of legalism, were far more concerned with rule-keeping than loving people. Friends, if you were to define legalism, how would you do that? Some of you maybe even grew up in a church or a so-called church or maybe even a legitimate cult where legalism was the norm, but it wasn't labeled legalism. How would you define legalism? Well, I think most of us, if we're like in a one-minute conversation, we would basically say legalism is a person's attempt to earn salvation by their works. And, And to an extent, that is certainly true. You can read the book of Galatians to kind of get a flavor of what Paul was dealing with amongst the Judaizers. But legalism is something more than that. It's much more than just maybe a wrong understanding of soteriology or the finer points of doctrine. Legalism at its root is, as Sinclair Ferguson has said, separating the law of God from the person of God separating the law of God from the person of God. That means that legalism is when a person's heart disposition towards God's law has been unhitched from the gracious, wise, and loving care of God's character. Legalism is when a person's heart disposition towards God's law has been unhitched from the gracious, wise, and loving care of God's character. In other words, a legalistic heart sees God's law as cold, callous, maybe even arbitrary in nature. God's just a rule giver. He's just a tyrant. He's just a dictator. God's law is viewed much like a moralistic ladder someone has to climb in order to earn God's favor or to gain God's attention and pleasure. Legalism is is really all of our default settings as fallen human beings when we view God's law divorced from the loving heart of God who gave it. Don't you remember that serpent's slithering slander about God? that he put into the ears of Eve back in the garden? Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, Satan questioned God's word and he questioned the trustworthiness of the God who gave that word. And then he questioned God's goodness in the command he gave to Adam and Eve. In other words, what that slithering serpent whispered into their ears that day was God's commands are not for your good. They're to harm you. God doesn't want you to have fun. God doesn't want you to have joy. God doesn't want you to have pleasure. God doesn't want you to be happy. God doesn't want you to trust him and love him. He's forbidden a tree. He's forbidden this one beautiful tree that's desirable to the eyes. You see, legalism focuses not on all the goodness of God. Legalism focuses on what God forbids. And what happens is you create. We can create a whole church, a whole community, a whole generation that views God like a miser, like a tyrant, like a cold and callous, cruel person who gives us a bunch of rules to obey but cares nothing for us. And friends, when Adam and Eve bought that lie, guess what happened to Adam and Eve? They began to hide from God And they began to be callous and cold to one another. Friends, our ancient serpent, Satan, he can certainly get churches and Christians and so-called Christians to teach false doctrine and believe false gospels. It's been happening in the first century, the second century, the third century, towards the Reformation, and in the 21st century been happening since the very beginning. But friends, do not think legalism is simply bad teaching. You and I can even join a gospel preaching church that has a solid and sound statement of faith that we sign, that we affirm, even we say we believe And we can still sit in our chairs Sunday after Sunday with hidden legalism caked in our hearts. That means we can have evangelical minds, but be legalist in our hearts. And friends, it is very, very subtle. It can happen to any church. It can happen to this church. You see, legalism in our hearts is way more subtle than legalism in our doctrine. Legalism trains us to love rules and traditions over loving and serving people. Legalism trains us to be skilled at comparing ourselves to others. It trains us to be a walking ruler where we are the standard by which all others are measured. Legalism makes us think that being perfectionistic and a chronic nitpicker is a virtue to pursue. Maybe even a fruit of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul left out in Galatians 5. Legalism can slip into the hearts of church members and pastors 
and either leave us puffed up with pride or leaving us feeling burdened and defeated. I think the most common form of legalism that runs in the bloodstream of many of us Baptists often shows itself in how we respond to the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Members of CCBC, when you leave a Bible study on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning or Thursday night or Sunday night, y'all are forming so many Bible studies, I don't even have the calendar right anymore. I love it. I love hearing stories of men and women getting together to talk about Jesus, to dig in the Word. I love it. And I love to show up on Sunday morning to see members and visitors ready and excited to hear God's Word. Oh, but friends, friends, how we respond to God's Word can reveal what's really going on in our hearts. So when you and I leave the Sunday morning worship gathering, Is your first response typically, wow, what a great God. Wow, what an awesome Savior. Or is it, I will now try much harder. Or I'm going to do better this week. You see, friends, It sounds like repentance and obedience, but that's really just legalism caked in a Baptist shirt. Oh, friends, pray that the preaching of the gospel would be central. It would shower every sermon that's ever preached here. Oh, may God remove me from the pulpit or Jansen or any man that stands up here that gives hard, cold rules without it being hitched to a loving, gracious God. Oh, friends, that's what makes us a Christian church. That's what gives life and fruit to the ministry of CCBC, to the ministry of every gospel-preaching church. Friends, in your counsel to others and how you parent your children, and how you counsel one another, be very careful of giving God's law, God's commands, unhitched from God's character. Friends, legalism, it's in all of our Baptist churches, and legalism, well, it's in our hearts even this morning. You see, friends, legalism can affect our relationship with God. When we treat our relationship with God as works-based rather than grace-based, Guess what's going to happen eventually? That vertical relationship is going to spill over into our horizontal relationships. Our relationships can become performance-oriented, where we are constantly grading ourselves and grading other people. Our relationships can become transactional in nature. We're in the relationship primarily for what the other person can give us. What benefits do I get in this relationship? rather than what I can give to it and expecting nothing in return. You see, this legalistic bent begins by affecting our relationship with God, and then it spills over, and it touches every relationship in our lives. Relationships with your spouse feels more like a business deal rather than an intimate, lifelong friendship. Relationships with your kids can feel more like a boss-to-employee relationship rather than a safe atmosphere 
of trust and love. Brothers and sisters, legalism can even cause our relationships with other church members to feel more like a competition where you are tempted to one-up the other person in the same ministry you're serving in instead of outdoing one another and showing honor, as Romans 12 verse 10 exhorts us to do. Friends, real Christianity is based off God's grace, covering our failures and sins, and God's grace motivating us to love Jesus more than the sin that Jesus died for. You see, these Pharisees in Mark chapter 2 were so preoccupied with law-keeping and adding their own standards of holiness upon God's word that they missed the highest priority in that moment of loving people made in God's image. Indeed, Jesus' answer to their accusation didn't even get a response. It was that good. It was a mic drop and all that more. It was spot on. Jesus can quote scripture in context and he can apply it to our hearts and to legalist hearts with perfection. That's why they couldn't say anything. They're being exposed. Jesus then reveals a second truth claim to tie up his response back to these Pharisees. The first was a punch to the gut. The second is a left uppercut like Mike Tyson in 1985. Just started watching that recently. I'm not saying do it, but if you go back, Tyson could knock dudes out. Anyway, not in my notes, probably not edifying. Truth claim number two, Jesus appeals to his authority over creation. He rightly claims his authority over the Sabbath day and the gift it was designed to be for God's people. Look at Mark 2, verses 27 and 28. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Well, here in verse 27, he reminds the Pharisees, and keep in mind, the disciples who are learning from Jesus are listening. They're sitting there going, they're eating their, uh, their bread, going, oh, wow. This is pretty powerful. This is exciting. Jesus is going toe-to-toe with these guys. And they're listening to what Jesus says about the original purpose for the Sabbath day was. It was made. Did you catch that phrase in verse 27? It was made for man. That means it was to be a blessing for man, not a curse, a time for spiritual renewal. And physical refreshment, not just another burden to add to your to-do list. No, again, Jesus is renewing their minds on what Satan had originally polluted Adam and Eve's minds with. He was reminding them that God's laws are good for us. But so is his heart and character behind every command he's ever given us. To view the Sabbath as something else other than a gift from God was to become a slave to a day rather than to experience the joy and rest it was designed to be. Then in verse 28, he's got the Pharisees in the turnbuckle. He's got them wobbling and wielding. Jesus shows that as the Son of Man, 
He is not merely a teacher of the law, but he is Lord of creation. As you recall back from Mark 2, verses 5 to 10, Jesus was charged with blasphemy because he claimed he had the divine authority to forgive sinners. Well, of course, we know an Orthodox Jew would have totally understood only God can forgive sins. But when Jesus heals the paralytic man, he was demonstrating his proof that he not only had power to heal the body, but he had the power to heal the soul. He forgave that man of his sins because Jesus, as the Son of Man, is also the incarnate one. But what does Jesus mean here in verse 28? That he is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Well, it means this. Jesus is not a Sabbath rebel or a Sabbath breaker. On the contrary, Jesus is the Sabbath maker. Jesus, through whom and by whom all things were made, Colossians 1 verse 16 says, is the one that the old covenant sacrificial system was pointing to. The circumcision, the Sabbath day, the sacrifices, the temple, the high priest, all of it in a basket were types and shadows that were fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what Brother Matt read earlier from Colossians 2. These were a type. They were shadows. They were previews of the rest, of the Sabbath rest we can experience in knowing Christ who is Lord of the Sabbath. You see, Jesus is greater than a 24-hour day of rest. Jesus is greater and more loving than David was in helping his men find bread to eat. Beloved, Jesus doesn't need to bake 12 loaves of bread. Jesus is the bread come down from heaven to satisfy his people. You see, in Jesus, we find forgiveness of sins. In Jesus, we find the grace and truth of God. In Jesus, we find rest for our weary and burdened and legalistic hearts. In Jesus, we find fellowship with a good God who always wants his best for us. And when we experience fellowship with God, God opens our eyes. He softens our hearts so that we can see and savor his goodness, his grace, his wisdom, including the goodness behind every command he gives us to obey. That's why 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 tells us, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Why are the Lord's commandments not burdensome? Well, it's because we find our rest and identity not in what we do or don't do for God, but we find our rest and identity, and what God has completed for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, legalism is like trying to sleep on concrete for 365 days a year. 
But when you meet Jesus, compared to that concrete, it's like a king-size sleep study bed or sleep. I just botched the illustration. I got a really nice bed a few years ago, sleep a lot better. But you get the point. There's no comparison. You know, some of us are so burdened when we gather on the Lord's Day. It's not because our life is that bad. It's because you've forgotten how good God is. The reason sometimes to me ministry can feel like Moses in the wilderness is because I probably have a legalistic heart and I need to believe the grace of God that I preach to you. Friends, we all need this because there is more to life than work, work, work. There is more to life than simply we work for God and just try harder. Friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not work for God and good luck, and try harder. That's legalism that condemns people to hell. And it creates little Pharisees in the church. Friends, if we don't want Pharisees to be hatched in the next generation at CCBC, we need to preach the gospel to them now. We need to pray and exemplify men and women of grace, of love. And every command we tell people about God, we never unhitch it from God's character and love. Tonight, we'll learn that there's more to the Christian life than just work, work, work. It's about rest and about worship. Brother Tom is going to teach from Romans 12, 1 and 2, and we'll hear from the Apostle Paul there that our life is to be offered as a living sacrifice back to God, not in order to pay God back, because you can't, but to display our utter trust in his loving character. You see, our work and our worship is to be a response to God's gracious gift to us in Christ. Christ already worked perfectly to accomplish the rest we so desperately want. Friends, in Christ, we taste the Sabbath rest. And one day, in the new heavens and new earth, we will all enjoy eternal rest with him. That's why in Matthew's gospel, we read of these glorious, life-giving words right before this account of Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. You remember Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30? Come to me. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, if you don't know this rest today, Christ carried the biggest burden we could ever carry, and that was dying on a rugged cross for the sins of everyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And he died, and three days later, God raised him from the dead, pronouncing victory over the grave. And as he presented himself to his heavenly Father in glory... The father accepted his sacrifice and said, sit down. The work is finished. And the rest, the Sabbath rest that was proclaimed in the Old Testament has now been made available to all people of all nations, of all types of sin, to find their rest in Jesus. Hmm. That's good stuff, isn't it? Augustine said in his confession, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. 
and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Christ's words here in verse 27 and 28 is his invitation for us to be freed from legalism and find rest in his grace. But what happens when a legalistic heart remains unchanged and unaffected by God's invitation to find rest in Jesus? Well, the coldness of legalism only increases into greater callousness and hatred in our hearts. In Mark chapter 3, you want to go ahead and look over. We find ourselves in a different scene, but on another Sabbath day. This time, we're back in the synagogue, the weekly place where Jews gather to hear the scriptures read. Last time we saw Jesus in the synagogue, do you remember? We witnessed him cast out a demon, out of a man, back in Mark chapter 1. And it set off a wave of popularity for Jesus. The crowd started flocking to him when they saw this uh, religious man get delivered. But this scene here in Mark chapter 3 seems more deceptive in nature. Well, in Mark chapter 1, the demon-possessed man seems pretty shocked that Jesus shows up to the Sabbath gathering. But in Mark chapter 3, the text suggests, if you're a very keen Bible student, you should have probably picked this up, that Jesus is being lured into a plot, a trap, to set up. There's a man in the synagogue with a withered hand, and the setup is to have Jesus heal him on the Sabbath. If Jesus heals him on the Sabbath... It could be looked at as working on the Sabbath. Remember, he already was accused of tolerating his disciples of eating on the Sabbath. But now we could get him right where we want him. Put the target on his back. He's working. And he's a Sabbath breaker. Well, legalist Larry and legalist Lucy, they're wanting to spy out Jesus and they think they got him. Now, the text explicitly doesn't say this, but it does hint at the possibility that the Pharisees found this withered man, this man with the withered hand, and brought him into the synagogue to be healed by Jesus for these very deceitful reasons. In other words, this vulnerable and weak man was used as a pawn in the enemy's hands to draw Jesus in so that they can accuse him of blasphemy. Did you notice what it says in verse 2? And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. See, they had a scheme. They had a secret meeting the day before. They had conspired together how they could get Jesus condemned. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus gets bold. He ain't scared. He looks at that man with the withered hand in front of everybody, including all the spies and sneaky Pharisees. Remember back in Mark 2.24, the Pharisees suspiciously questioned Jesus on why his disciples were not doing what was not lawful, at least according to the Pharisees. But this time, Jesus turns the tables back to them 
And he says in verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Well, how did the Pharisees respond? I love this. They were silent. They were silent the first time Jesus pulled out the scriptures and revealed their legalism, and now they're silent because Jesus knows exactly what they're doing. Jesus turns the question back on them, knowing that the Pharisees already knew in their own rules that it was perfectly fine to save someone's life, even an animal's life. Why would it be wrong to heal this withered man's hand? You see, Jesus corners them in their hypocrisy. The Sabbath didn't forbid this act of healing. And Jesus again reveals to them their legalism and his love. He's showing the priority of compassion, the higher principle of mercy over sacrifice, because love is the fulfillment of the law, as we know from the greatest two commandments. He restores the man's hand and the man experiences healing. But something quite significant emerges in the passage that is revealing about the nature of a hardened heart and Jesus's response to it. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, we see one of the few instances in the Gospels where we see the king of love demonstrate his utter grief and anger. If you ever wondered if Jesus ever got angry, here's one of several instances. Notice what it says. Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Their hardness of heart. What is a hardened heart? Well, a hardened heart speaks of a heart that is resistant to God. It's stubborn. It's stiff-necked, as the scriptures sometimes describe it. The word here denotes a callousness, a spiritual blindness. It's a heart that is unwilling to submit to Jesus' authority and a heart that is unteachable when instructed by the Lord's commands. It's a heart that left to itself is unable to come to God unless God supernaturally draws them to himself. A hardened heart is not the same as having weak faith or being weary in faith. The Lord is compassionate towards us when we are at our weakest. But a hardened heart is a heart that has become comfortable in sin. A heart that has made its bed, turned out the lights, and gotten real comfortable in unbelief. It's the heart that says, I know what God's word says, but I'm not going to obey it. It's the heart that says, I know what God's word says, but God wants me to be happy. So this course of action and that lifestyle is what I'm going to do. It's the heart that says, I don't care what God's word says. You can't tell me what to do. Don't tell me I'm wrong. And if you do, you will feel my wrath. Friends, a hardened heart is a very serious matter. If Jesus was grieved and even angry over the Pharisees' hardness of heart, 
then shouldn't we? A hardened heart is what Jesus says causes people to get divorces with one another. Mark chapter 10, verse 5. A hardened heart is what Mark tells us leads people to want to destroy Jesus. Mark 3, verse 6. And a hardened heart is what the writer of Hebrews says can lead any one of us to fall away if we aren't vigilant and responsive to God's word. So friends, how can we protect ourselves from that legalistic bent? How can we protect our own hearts from hardening? Listen to Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers and sisters, we can protect ourselves from the hardening effect of sin by opening up our life and opening up our hearts to one another. Friends, no one in here, including the pastor, is exempt from the goodness of accountability, the wisdom of encouragement, the wisdom of people rebuking us and correcting us in the safeguard of Christians who care more about us following Jesus than they might do about your dislike of their lo- your love for them. Friends, we need the local church. That's the one anothering Hebrews is saying. Do we want our hearts to remain malleable and, and pliable and soft? We need other people speaking into our life. In the local church, we serve as nurses that come alongside the great physician, Jesus Christ, to minister to one another. In the local church, we exhort one another when we are becoming legalistic in our hearts. In the local church, we remind one another of the rest we can have in coming to Jesus. In the local church, we are reminded each week that we need one another to protect our hearts from going hard in unbelief. You know, a song we've sung here a few times, I hope in time would become a favorite at CCBC. It's the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. Listen to these lyrics as we close. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome, God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. Friends, has your heart grown hard towards God and towards other people? Is your heart weary and heavy laden? Friends, tell the Lord Jesus Christ and tell one of his followers we need one another week in and week out to have our hearts resting in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Do you know this rest today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your commands are not cold and callous, but your commands flow from a heart of love for us. What you command is good for us, and what you tell us not to do is good for us. Father, I do pray that you would continue to work in our hearts, that our hearts would not grow cold with legalism and callous towards one another. Lord, I pray your grace would mark each one of us, that your grace would soften our hearts first towards you and to one another. Lord, I pray you would receive honor and glory as a result of this time today. In Jesus' name, amen.